Now, I'm not sure if C.S. Lewis needs an introduction. Probably not. But for those who know him only from his Narnia stories, C.S. Lewis was one of the most influential thinkers, Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Now, I mentioned a few months ago when one of my sons told me he'd just finished enjoying one of Lewis's books. So I promptly ordered another couple from the book depository that arrived a week or two later. And just last week, my daughter, youngest daughter, she said she picked up a copy of Mere Christianity. So I sent her a link to a website, to a YouTube website, that as the each chapter is read, somebody doodles in a very professional way and illustrates what C.S. Lewis is talking about. Now, you may have picked up that oh, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan for some reason or other. And as I was contemplating and praying about how to preach this passage this week, a quote from one of his sermons called The Weight of Glory came to mind. The Weight of Glory. And it goes like this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature that if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It's a bit of a mind-twisting thought, isn't it? Now, where did C.S. Lewis get the idea that one day even the dullest of us would be transformed into one of the most wonderful of creatures that you could imagine? Not only that, C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of an ant. Next to the most blessed sacrament itself, and he's referring to communion. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now, C.S. Lewis gets this idea from the Bible and from the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And as this is new ground for many of us, dangerous ground, in fact, it's very important that we pause and pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the riches of your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide our thoughts as we explore what it is to be your glorious inheritance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in our journey through Paul's letter. Does he come across this idea? Well, we're in the second half of chapter one where Paul is praying for those who are receiving the letter, not just for first century Christians, but for us ourselves. And after thanking God for us, he prays that we may know God better. And then he prays for these things that we read in verse 18. Three things. Verse 18, this is what he's praying for us. I pray also the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, that's the first thing, to which you are called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that's the second thing, and thirdly, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So I'll read that again. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
So Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart may be opened. And last time I preached, we look at the hope that Paul was praying for us to have. And the next message, we'll be looking at the power, the resurrection power that we have available in our lives. But today we're going to focus on the glory and in particular the phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, at first glance, this phrase is a reference to our inheritance that we receive as God's children. That's what it looks like when we first look at it. I mean, God is our father, we are his, his children, and one day we will receive an inheritance. And this is biblical, real, and something to look forward to. And often when the Bible does talk about inheritance, it is talking about that wonderful richness and blessings that we will receive. But not here. Notice that it's his inheritance. It's God's inheritance that's been talked about, not ours. And surprisingly, we are his inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, a saint is anyone who follows Jesus. In the Bible, that was the way they referred to Christians or believers. So where you read saint in the Bible, read Christ followers. So we are God's inheritance. And you might be thinking, really? Me? Part of God's inheritance? That's unusual. I wonder what it all means. So first of all, let me show you that we are, from other verses in the Bible, God's inheritance, and then we'll unpack what this means. So just two verses to show that we are God's inheritance. The first from Psalm 28, verse 9, that was read just before. And this psalm says, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And this verse where we as God's followers, God's people are referred to as sheep, it makes it very clear that we are God's inheritance. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose as an inheritance. We are his inheritance. Well, you might concede, well, it's clear in the Bible, but uh, we're a pretty shabby looking inheritance, aren't we? But that's where the next part of the phrase comes on, because it's not just we are God's inheritance. The Bible says we are God's glorious inheritance, God's glorious inheritance. Now, most people, unless you have a particularly large and inflated ego, would struggle with the idea that we are God's glorious inheritance until we have a look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. God's will be like Jesus' resurrected body. We will be transformed. One day, either when we die or when Christ returns again, we will be transformed and be given a resurrection body. We will still be recognizably human. We will be able to recognize each other. But this body that we are in now will be completely transformed into a resurrected body. And that's what C.S. Lewis was imagining. And his typical wonderful imagination that was rooted in that whole Narnia experience, instead of just thinking, oh, yes, we will have a resurrected body, C.S. Lewis said, well, what does that look like? What will that mean? And that's why he writes this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember the dullest, 
most uninteresting person you can talk to, maybe one day be a creature that if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It's because C.S. Lewis is doing the hard work of thinking, oh, yes, we'll have resurrected bodies. What what will that look like? Well, goodness me, if anyone in this room could be revealed of what they will look like in their resurrected body, we would just fall on our, we would fall to the ground amazed in awe. Not so that we would worship them, but just because we would have never seen anything as glorious as that resurrected person. And you think, well, why would God take a shabby, rebellious, no-name people like us and make him his glorious inheritance? I mean, hasn't God got taste? I mean, look at you. Look at me. (laughs) Oh, we're way away from being anybody's glorious inheritance. Why on earth would God do this transformation? And the answer is, it's for his renown. He will use us to show all of creation, all created beings in the heaven and earth, how marvellous he is because he has reached down to us, rebellious and shabby and messed up and transformed us into these glorious resurrected beings. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The shabbier, more messed up we are, the greater the transformation. And therefore, the greater fold renown, the greater the renown, the greater the manifold wisdom and mercy of God will be on display in the heavenly realms. It's kind of a little bit like this. Imagine the father of the bride and how he feels when his precious daughter in the most beautiful of dresses, is practically glowing in all her glory. Imagine how he feels. And then there are all the guests. And there is that glory as the bride walks down the aisle. Well, God feels like that for you and I, and all creation will be looking on at us and will give our Heavenly Father all the glory that's due his name. So we are being made glorious for God's renown, that his name will resound with honor through all creation, even to the farthest corner of the heavenly realms. And isn't that amazing? Many of us may have never really thought that we who look to Jesus as Savior and Lord and follow him have become God's glorious inheritance. Now, what does this mean for everyday life? How can we possibly apply this on a Monday morning? Two areas I want to look at today. And the first thing is self-esteem and how this can influence our self-esteem. You see, the Bible has the audacity to say that there's a God who made all the stars and all the galaxies and all the planets and all the worlds. But when he looks at you, he says, this is my inheritance. When he looks at you, He feels wealthy. When he looks at you, he sees you as more valuable than anything else in the universe put together. Now, this idea goes back to the very early times in Christianity, long before anyone had heard of self-esteem. 
Now today we hear a lot of talk about self-esteem and in particular how low self-esteem is bad for us and how we need to build our self-esteem up. And there's lots of advice out there about how to increase our self-esteem. And you can find it in women's books, women's magazines, I should say, self-help books. Popular culture will tell you how you can build your self-esteem. And the advice goes something like this. Think of your talents. Lose some weight. Set some goals and reach them, but make sure they're attainable. Spend time doing what's really important to you. Spend time with people who appreciate you. Pat yourself on the back. Now, who can argue with these? But what's all this compared to God considering you as his most precious inheritance? I mean, these other things are just a mere raindrop, and God's love for us is the ocean. So here's something a little better to say to yourself. Say, I am the special treasure of God. When the God of the universe looks at me, his heart wells up and he feels wealthy. And the great God of the universe is willing to use all his mighty power to protect me and rescue me no matter what the cost. I mean, say to yourself, Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17, the Lord my God is with me. He is mighty to save. He does take great delight in me. He does quiet me with his love. He does rejoice over me with singing. You see, if you don't start taking this sort of thing deep down into your center, that God delights in you and rejoices over you because you are his inheritance, then you will be like everyone else. You see, everyone else around us, well, they're they're scrounging for compliments. They're desperate for affirmation. They're longing for acclaim and they're hanging out for approval. But we don't have to be like that anymore, not if we understand that we are God's wonderful inheritance, his most treasured possession. So if we go to bed at night and we toss and turn because we've been insulted or slighted or ignored, how dare any of us nurse a grudge or allow pride to fester or say to ourselves, I don't like myself anymore and people don't like me either. How dare we say that when we know that we are God's treasured possession? This then is our first take home. We build our self-esteem God's way for his renown. So that's the first implication of being God's glorious inheritance. The second thing is how we consider others. I mean, if we're God's treasured possession, so is every other Christ follower. Remember C.S. Lewis's quote. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to will one day be a creature that if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. If the person seated next to you is a Christian and was this moment revealed in their future glory, you and I, we would all fall down in awe. However, to stop our egos from overinflating, to stop our natural tendency to put self at the center of everything, then the best use of this is to apply it to others, to know that the person next to us 
is God's glorious inheritance. And this will affect the way that we treat them. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What I am talking to you today is very dangerous because in ourselves, we will always twist God's blessing to our advantage and our pride and our independence. And that's why it's very important that as we dwell on the fact and build our self-esteem in God as his precious inheritance, we then apply that to the person sitting next to us. So we never take Christ followers for granted. We never treat them badly. We do to them as we would have them do to us. Not only this, we have a responsibility to help them become the more glorious creature they're meant to be. Because after C.S. Lewis explains that all those who follow Christ will either be, will be transformed into something more glorious, he also spends time showing from the Bible that those people that reject God are slowly being transformed into something very hideous. Your worst nightmare. And that we only have one of two choices. We are either being transformed closer and closer to God's children or we are being transformed closer and closer to the most hideous of creatures that will live eternity in hell. And so there is a responsibility. C.S. Lewis writes, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with awe and circumspection profited in that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, or friendships, or loves, or play, or politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now Lewis goes on to say there's plenty of room for joy and laughter and good friends and fellowship and the good things of life, but once you know this, well, you will experience at a much deeper and richer level. And so, after church this morning, when you have a cup of tea, you will not be speaking to a mere mortal. So let's pull this together with a brief summary and then a closing illustration. Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart will be opened. He's praying that we may know the hope that we've called to, the glory that we are as God's inheritance, and the resurrection power that can help us in our lives. And this week, this Sunday, we've applied and looked at the glory. We are God's glorious inheritance. And we've seen that this is the basis of godly self-esteem, that we are dearly loved and treasured by our Heavenly Father. And we've also seen how helpful it is when it comes to considering others. So one last point as I close. A story uh, when I was a lad, about 10, in the early 70s, we would often spend time having holidays with my grandparents, and, and it was great. And my grandfather, he had a Ford Falcon, orange, new, bench seats, and it was awesome. And my uncle, he was younger than the rest of his sisters, the only boy, and he was a petrol head. And he would often talk to his father, my grandfather, and says, how's my inheritance? It needs a wash, Dad. Give it a polish. I think I saw a scratch on my inheritance, Dad. 
and that banter went on. It was lovely as a young grandson and nephew to see that. And then sadly one day, my grandfather passed away. But my grandmother survived, and that was lovely. You know, I never heard my uncle refer to that orange Ford Falcon as his inheritance again. It was just a bit of banter between his father and him, and he missed his father. And one day he did get that car. It was a little bit tired, a little bit older, but it was his treasured possession because it reminded him of his dad. And that's one thing we haven't talked about, have we? Is that whenever there is an inheritance, someone has to die. And then whenever we receive an inheritance, a prized possession, it is always tinged with that sadness that there has been a death of a loved one. So let me ask you, who died so that you could become our Heavenly Father's greatest possession? I mean, who died to make all this possible? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, God is very much transforming you from one stage of glory into the next. Let us never forget that this is all for his renown, not for us. It's for the honor of our heavenly father and came at great cost. A cost gladly paid by our dear Lord Jesus Christ, our savior and friend. The same Lord who invites us to his table now, where we will remember his body broken and his blood shed for us. Why? So that we might become God's treasured possession, dearly and greatly loved. What an honor. What a privilege to be called a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us have had our minds really stretched this morning with the idea that we are your treasured inheritance, greatly loved. We pray that this truth will just go down deep to our centre and that we will use that to build our esteem in you, but also to treat other Christians well, (laughs) as we deserve. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to your communion table that we will come with hearts of gratitude to Jesus who died so that we could be our Heavenly Father's greatest inheritance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.